Nobody sees a flower. Really. It is so small it takes time. We haven't time. And to see takes time. Like to have a friend takes time. Georgia O'Keeffe. This is Our Numinous Nature, and I'm your host, Philippe. We'll be hearing the profound stories of people with a deep connection to the natural world, from herbalists to hunters, wildlife rehabilitators to trappers, artists to homesteaders. The list goes on. My hope is to thread a needle that weaves together the many nature-related passions through stories of reverence. In nature, I've found meaning, a richness for life that grows with each new day. Maybe you feel the same. Or maybe you long to. Well, that quote was provided by today's guest, Susan Leopold, who is both my landlady and the executive director of United Plant Savers. United Plant Savers is a nonprofit. Um, focused on medicinal plants, especially in America and uh, in Appalachia. I'm going to read you their mission off of their website because it's far better than anything I could put together. United Plant Savers' mission is to protect native medicinal plants of the United States and Canada and their native habitat while ensuring an abundant renewable supply of medicinal plants for generations to come. These are exciting times for herbalists. We are witnessing the art of herbalism rapidly regaining its rightful place in the American tradition of health and healing. However, as herbalism flourishes and winds its way into the mainstream of America, it is eliciting a unique set of problems and concerns. Where once herbal enterprises were few and far between, it is now a competitive marketplace which has increased the demand on wild medicinal plant resources. Furthermore, other countries with an uninterrupted tradition of herbalism are experiencing a severe shortage of medicinal plants and look to the North American continent for supplying these herbs. This increased usage, along with habitat destruction, is causing an ever-increasing shortage of wild plant resources, including some of our most treasured medicinal species. The work of United Plant Savers involves research, education, and conservation of native medicinal plants and their habitats. We hope that you will join us in this worthwhile and important mission. UPS, United Plant Savers, is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Okay, so that's their bio. United Plant Savers was founded by Rosemary Gladstar, who I'm sure if you're if you're an herbalist, you know who she is. If not, quite the um, remarkable and numinous woman. I've only met her a handful of times at UPS events. Um, maybe one day we'll have her on the podcast. She did tell me this incredible story. She was camping, I think, in Canada. And they had like a white wolf appear at their camp. And they were they were really like deep in the wilderness. I can't remember if it was in Canada or if it was in the Boundary Waters. I'm not sure where it was, but it would be cool to have her come on and tell that story. I have to really publicly share my gratitude towards Susan and United Plant Savers. <clears throat> because while I was still living in New York City, 
I met Susan through my mom because my mom is an herbalist and has been studying herbalism here in uh, here in the Blue Ridge of Virginia. And uh, so Susan is obviously connected with all the herbalists here. And my mom introduced us. And fortunately, I met Susan at a time when United Plant Savers needed an illustrator to illustrate a bunch of signs for their botanical sanctuary and future conservation center over in Rutland, Ohio. They had a, the property is a reclaimed coal mining site and completely uh, covered in medicinal plants. And they wanted to have a handful of signs along a trail that went up into the the reclaimed mine area and through the woods. And they wanted illustrations all over it. So Susan hired me to do this project. I got to go to the sanctuary while still living in New York City. And this was really um, a major step in moving away from New York. And Susan, you know, kind of synchronistically showed me the cabin on her property. And she said, hey, do you need a place? This is $800 a month, which is exactly how much I was paying for my one little tiny bedroom in Brooklyn, New York. And I just said instantaneously, yes. So I, on behalf of both me and now my girlfriend who lives here with me, we are incredibly grateful to live here in this unbelievably beautiful little property. And uh, this is, she, uh, Susan has been instrumental in changing both our lives, truly. So this podcast, I found one of my favorites, really wonderful. And, uh, you know, even having, you know, even you're having a friend as your landlady, you don't really sit down and talk for so long. So, uh, um, you know, normally our small talk is quite short and, and terse. So I was quite blown away to hear Susan just go ripping through all sorts of really fascinating history, um, about here where we live, about um, her ancestry um, with ginseng and all sorts of other topics. So I loved this one and I hope you really enjoy this. So before we get in the interview, here are a few links. If you want to become a member of United Plain Savers, they would really appreciate that. Um, you get a journal of medicinal plant conservation. You get one of those, I think there's one a year. Um, I actually illustrated the the cover of the last one, and that's filled with a lot of um, articles, some written by Susan, um, by all sorts of herbalists, ethnobotanists, all sorts of folks that are interested in the conservation of medicinal plants. You get one of those journals. I believe you get some nice stickers, and uh, you're giving money to a great a uh, great mission. You can go and check that out at United plantsavers.org. They've also got um, a great Instagram that Susan runs. It's uh, United Plant Savers. And if you're interested, uh, Susan has been selling some high concentration hemp extract products. She talks about um, her newest product in this podcast, which is not yet up on the website, but you can find it soon. That's at Paris apothecaryva.com. There'll be links below. Um, She's got two products up there right now. 
a looks like a tincture and a, a capsule, both CBD. Um, her boyfriend, Vincent, he grows, he's been growing the CBD here on the farm. It's been pretty cool to see that and uh, uh, to help him, not this year, but last year I helped him out with cutting the buds and as he was drying them up in the house. Let's get into the interview. It's a longer one. There was so much good stuff. I didn't want to any, edit anything out. And uh, happy new year. And I really appreciate everyone listening. Uh, with my mural job, I haven't been able to focus too much on the podcast. We'll get more into it next year. And I really appreciate people reaching out and telling me that they appreciate the podcast and they find it meaningful and inspiring and hopeful to hear such passionate and inspiring human beings talk about their lives and what they love. I really appreciate that. Sometimes I can get a little despondent and really get some severe imposter syndrome and think, why the hell do I have this stupid podcast? And uh, what do I know? I'm as green as it gets. And uh, I, when I really can reflect from a distance, it seems that that's the whole point, is to have childlike wonder at at my elders for the most part these people who have been living this lifestyle for a long time and can share what they love and can share some of their concerns and uh can kind of lead us lead us in a direction of nature love and uh nature wisdom i guess okay let's get into this thing Certainly, uh, this area was called Africa Mountain because topographically it's very steep, it's rugged, and really rocky. So it wasn't ideal farmland, which is why it was settled by um, African Americans after the Civil War. Mm. And even the cabin that we're in right now. So the the cabin that I rent, which has been renovated a handful of times, but is isn't the foundation possibly one of these original? I guess, African homesteads? Yes. And actually, there are three uh, very old houses on the property that um, have really distinct measurements. And so it, it appears that they were all probably built um, by the same group of people. Post-Civil War. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And, um, and you've renovated those. And other than we live in this one, but the other one is an Airbnb. Right. Called the Cherry Cabin. And actually, um, both this house and the Cherry Cabin uh, were pretty much falling over and inhabited by wildlife and yeah. not not livable at all. So each one of them was kind of a, a painstaking restoration in which I tried to preserve whatever aspects of the house that I could, and then restoring them to um, as closely as I could to, to how they were built. Well, I mean, one of the first things you told me when I moved in here was about the wood rat. Right. And uh, I've told you like about a week or so ago, so basically the water in this cabin is very crude. It's, um, it's spring-fed. It's spring-fed, and we can't drink the tap water um, the, 
but you know, we wash the dishes and then rinse them off later. The bathtub is spring fed. So it's all kind of like crazy frog water. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it has to, it's filtered and there's a filter to change underneath the house. So, you know, about a week ago, I crawl under the house and it's a mess under there because the wood rat has been building his nest. And on top of the water heater was this like three foot, like <laughs> um, pyramid of um, dried up pokeberries from the yard, the fig leaves from the yard and bits of um, that pink insulation stuff. Mm-hmm. And wow, that was neat. Cause we've heard the wood rat in the walls and under the house for the entire time I've lived here, but I've never seen that nest. And you were telling me when I moved here, do you want to tell? Go ahead. One, well, you're saying one of the past tenants, they would things would go missing, right? Because the wood rat would come up in the house and steal little trinkets like coins and buttons and little crystals and take it, and they the wood rat will put it into their nest. Yep. I mean that is the neatest and cutest thing ever. And I I finally after three years I finally saw it. I went outside to feed the rabbits at night. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like someone was looking at me and I turned and I saw the little wood rat on the side of the house and then he disappeared into the stones. Go oh, on. you saw the wood rat? I saw him. Well, they're extremely cute because they have these um, really big ears and long tail. And, and they're, they're solitary. And they're solitary. And I actually heard that some of the species are becoming at risk. Right, because they really do depend on old abandoned structures and, and things like that to find their home. And there's fewer and fewer of those kinds of habitat that make it ideal for the wood rat. Mm. Well, let's keep talking about just... And, I, and I'm, I'm a collector of things, and I put them in really random places. So I often identify with the wood rat. And that's why we collaborated on that poster for the Paris Apothecary mm-hmm. with the theme of, of the wood rat and all its trinkets in, in the, with the light of the so winter your spirit solti- animal solstice. might be the wood rat. <laughs> and the dragonfly. Those, <laughs> those two things I identify with. That's awesome. Well, before we get into plants, um, so you have these old foundations that you turned into Airbnbs in this cabin. Mm-hmm. Then there's this wonderful tree house that you rent as an Airbnb that you actually had made through a TV show. Right. What was the name of the show? The Treehouse Guys. The Treehouse Guys. Okay. Right. And so that is so neat. I mean, do you want to say anything about the Treehouse? Well, the Treehouse was a collaboration between myself and Barefoot Treehouses, which is, um, shit, I forgot his name. That's terrible. We can't remember. Michael Murphy. Michael Murphy. Michael Murphy's the name of the guy. (laughs) Okay, let's start over. (laughs) We'll just pick it up from there. So you and and this Michael Murphy guy collaborated to make the treehouse, and then it was also on a TV show? Right. So I rode into the TV show on a whim, not thinking anything of it. And uh, about a month later, I got a call from the production company, and they said the way it works is they connect me with the builder, and then the builder and I meet. They pay for that meeting, and... Um, and then I make the arrangement with the treehouse builder, which was Michael Murphy of Barefoot Treehouses. And he act he and I actually walked the land, picked out the location, and talked about, you know, what the 
treehouse would be. And he calls himself kind of like a, a midwife of, of building treehouses. Mm. He, he facilitates that process. And um, we had a good connection and talked about uh, building a treehouse on a very limited budget and using as many recycled materials from the property. Mm. So the treehouse kind of came about from walking the land and seeing what kind of piles of stuff I had accumulated. To Antiques, junk, all of the above. All of the above. And um, even taking the tin off of an old roof on the property and siding the treehouse with that, mm, as well neat. as incorporating um, all kinds of uh, leftover building material projects, building materials that were on the property. So it's really uh, recycled organic. Mm, so cool. And that's it's super popular on Airbnb, right? It's super popular on Airbnb. That is awesome. And then there's your house, which is a straw bale house. And so up there, you've got your goats, You've got a bunch. You've got a garden with a bunch of elderberry trees. You've got chickens. You get the five dogs are up there. There's a big field. But what's up with the straw bale house? Because that's super unique. It is super unique, and uh, for sure is the first straw bale house in our county, hmm. and may have been one of the first to be permitted legally in the state of Virginia. Hmm. I was a student, I got my master's at the Conway School of Landscape Design, and I was exposed to Yestermorrow, which is where um, my husband, Jonathan, took a straw bale class. Hmm. And, you know, we began working on the permitting and designing, but it certainly uh, built um, as a passive solar house, which means that it's bermed in the, into the north um, facing side, and then on the southern side, it's all windows. So you're collecting the solar gain, you're warming the house, and it's giving off that heat in the winter. There are a lot of things about it um, that uh, bring about ecological design and how important it is, not only the materials that you build with, but how you site the house. Hmm. And so a lot of thought went into that process, and it has a natural cooling effect and that the um, first floor is built into the earth, and then there's a cupola that opens up in the summer, and then that creates kind of your natural convection where the warm air rises, and then mm. the cool air then um, is able to to cool the house naturally. So it, it is a really unique home in that it incorporates a lot of ecological principles in its design, as well as being built out of straw that was grown just down the road and oh, that's cool. brought up here on an 18-wheeler. And, and what's the hard exterior? And the hard, the the house is um, a natural plaster, mm -hmm. which consists of clay <clears throat> that we dug from a hole on the property. Really? And then- That is neat. And then lime, which we, um, you hydrate and you let it sit for a year. So you combine the lime, the sand, and the clay- and then that's what gives you um, really a, a living coat that breathes um, in the structure. And that's something that not many people think about, but how how a building breathes hmm. is really important to the overall indoor air quality. And uh, straw bale um, construction that has lime plaster, lime is antimicrobial, antibacterial, hmm. and... Um, it can get wet and dry, so it's it it's really a 
a living wall. Whoa. Which a medicinal house. A medicinal house. Wow. Yeah. You've never told me that part. That and is really interesting. What's so fascinating is that if you were to go back in time, um, we're in the Shenandoah Valley, which at one time was a big ocean. And so there's mm-hmm. a lot of um, limestone deposits, which makes it, you know, really ideal fertile agricultural land. But also lime was a major resource and most people, um, you're just to go back in time, mm-hmm. covered their houses with lime-based plaster. Now, do you mean the settlers? Or you mean the indigenous people, um, or both? Probably both to some extent, but mm. cer- but certainly the settlers and um, those that came from from Europe were really familiar with mm. uh, limestone plaster, and so you'd build out a stone or whatever, but it was often covered with limestone plaster or the. Um, the horsehair lath, which is what this old um, house was. My cabin here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What's that? You actually use horsehair? It was, they would do these little um, laths and then they would mix a combination of lime and horsehair mm. and then they would um, so cool. mud in the walls. That's so neat. So. Uh, which you know made made for a really healthy. Is that what when in- you see the log and chink cabins? Is that what the the white the the chink is? Yes. Okay. And and, and uh, if you could imagine, you know, it wasn't that long ago that mills were almost on every little creek, and mm. many of these mills uh, ground up limestone. Mm, wow. To be used in in in, in building. So yeah, I know because of the caving I've done, I know that this is a very lime, uh, limestone rich. This entire region. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, while we're on the topic of going back in history, mm-hmm. so you've told me, um, and I don't know how much you've talked about it publicly. I think you've said that it's not really something you necessarily want to always bring up, but you have ancestry with the Powhatan tribe, which is a Virginia tribe. Is that something you want to talk about? Um, sure. It's, uh, I am a member of um, the Virginia State recognized Padawamak tribe. Okay. And what did I just, what, is that totally different people? I'm not sure what you. <laughs> I said the Powhatan. Well, the Padawamak tribe was part of the Powhatan Confederacy. Okay. So you are correct in, in some capacity. Um, Chief Powhatan uh, oversaw you know, a whole region within the Chesapeake Bay mm. could say that, you know, with, with several different tribes. And um, the Padawamak was one of those. Of course, okay. Chief Powhatan um, had his daughter Pocahontas. Pocahontas uh, married a chief within the Padawamak tribe mm. and actually had a daughter with him before she was uh, kidnapped. Mm. And taken as a prisoner, mm. and it's it's a pretty intense story because you could imagine during that time, actually, the Padawamak tribe um, was struggling for their own identity under Chief Powhatan's mm. reign, and they, you know, believed that if they formed an alliance, um, it would bring peace, and and there was, you know, a hundred years or so of of, of trading and and um, collaboration. Within the Padawamak tribe, what years are we talking right now? We're talking mid 1600s. Okay, and um, so of course the 
the story of Pocahontas has been, um, you know, quite controversial, but mm. actually those, there were individuals within the Padawamak tribe that negotiated to hand over Pocahontas. Mm. So she was tricked by her own people mm. to get on the boat, and then she was, you know, taken prisoner. What was their incentive for that? Some kind of treaty or some kind of... Yeah, I, they they wanted to win favor, mm. and um, and they had hoped that it would bring you know peace between the English mm. and the different Indian tribes at that time. Um, now, how, now, how? Oh, carry on. Sorry to interrupt. Of course, that was you know not the end result, mm-hmm. and you know Pocahontas, Pocahontas goes on to be this legendary figure, and you know brought to England. Um, did have a son, and uh, as she was leaving on the boat to come back to America, uh, she died suddenly, hmm. and her body was brought back to England and buried, and her son was was raised by other people and eventually does make it back to the Americas and, hmm. and has... Is this uh, so who's... Is, so it, is she forced into marrying a European? Was it John Smith or something? Is that what the story is? Um, I, you know, there's been so many different twists and turns, but, um, she was forced into, to marriage and then Mm. became known as, you know, was renamed Rebecca. Mm. Um, and there's, you know, a lot of different, uh, perceptions of, of what happened. A lot of people do believe that, you know, kind of that Stockholm syndrome that, that she Mm -hmm. was, um, you know, kidnapped, probably raped, mm. um, you know, pregnant with child, mm. and then married, and then brought really <clears throat> to England um, as an emissary of the trading company that wanted mm. to secure more funds. So she was uh, an advertisement, mm. if you, you know, to wow. um, to continue what was happening. And there's you know lots of different perceptions that, you know, historians have tried to put together from, from the fragments that, that we have of that time period. Wow. Um, but the Padawamek tribe, um, which is sort of based out of White Oak, Virginia, which is on the outskirts of Fredericksburg. Okay. Interestingly enough- so is that and, the Rappahannock River? Um, well, the Potomac. The Potomac, okay. Well, no, that's not correct, actually. Okay. You're right. The I, I think the Rappahannock drains out in yeah. Fredericksburg area. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Um, the entire tribe uh, was massacred in the year 1666. Wow. And by uh, who? By the English. Hmm. And when that happened, um, several women who had high status within the tribe were then married into prestigious mm. families. I think because there was this long history of trade and relations, and so there was sympathy, I think, within the English settlers to mm. take in a few um, of the elite who had survived the massacre. And it's really from those women that were able to trace the lineage of the descendants of today. So when you said the elite, there was some level of respect for certain families within the tribe? Right. That were, you know, you could call them, you know, princesses or, 
you know, of of royalty within the tribe. Mm. And uh, what what we know from historical records is that those that weren't killed in the massacre, I think if you were like under 10, you were um, taken in as a slave to serve mm. a, a colonial family, mm. and the rest were actually sold into slavery into wow. the Caribbean to work the sugar wow. plantations. So that, you know, I think there's a lot of... Uh, elements of history that you know really get lost mm. and there there probably were um quite a few uh indigenous people from the colonial period and and prior to that that were captured and, and sold into slavery mm. um that those kind of stories you don't you don't really hear much about but mm -hmm. that's uh what we know happened to the majority of the Padawamak tribe and um, my aunt um who's always been a genealogist and uh, wrote a book, Relatives Along the Rappahannock. Actually, she um, she's really helped work with a lot of the historians within the tribe to kind of um, uh, link those those families together. So, how do you, how is your family linked in there? So, my both my um, grandmother and grandfather on my mother's side. Um, have lineage going back to the tribe. Okay, and uh, it's uh, unique in that the um, because there was such you know communications or relations within the um, the English at the time. There there were a few um, English settlers that lived with the tribe that documented the language. Hmm. So it's one of the few tribes of Virginia that. Um, has a documented language, mm. and actually we have language classes within the within the tribe to kind of um do you know any of it? Wingapo is mm. probably the you know um, sa salutation or mm. um but it's you know it's interesting to think about that idea of um just the very few threads that are left and how those threads can, um, I don't know, be a spark to uh, reviving a, a tribe that was really lost to history in 1666, which is like, I don't know, hmm. 400 years ago. Mm -hmm. so, <laughs> and, and most, and, and quite a few people um, within that, you know, that are um, a part of the Padawamak tribe. I mean, all these families, you know, through throughout this, um, 400 year history have have still reside in the area of White Oak, Virginia. So that's mm. kind of fascinating to think about. Mm, very. And um, just to kind of close up this topic, which is very interesting. What do you know? What culturally, what kind of people they were? Do you know what was important to their culture? Well, certainly, um, fishing was mm. was really critical. So um, a lot of the artifacts um, show really um, interesting ways that they would put, you know, the fish traps in the river. And, oh, that's cool. And collect fish. Is that and, called a weir or something? And that, it's, it, it's interesting. And that is, you know, kind of um, a picture of that type of basket is like the emblem of the, the Padawamak tribe. And uh, there is an archaeological area where they are pretty sure um, where the where the tribe resided uh, before the massacre of 1666, and 
Um, they are trying to uh, possibly build a traditional village there and, oh, and reclaim that. Um, so the basket, it's just made out of reeds or something? Mm-hmm. Wow, and it would catch the fish. Yeah, it would be um, kind of like a, a cone. Yes, and I see you, it in my head. And then you wedge, you would wedge it within the rocks. That is so And neat. then the fish would, that is so would swim neat. into them. And, um, and I've actually seen, I think that is, you know, known in indigenous communities around the world that, you know, lived close to rivers and mm. fished. It's, I think it's, it's mm. an interesting um, to see how different cultures can, can come up with these primitive um, technologies mm-hmm. that, you know, just worked really well. So Extremely they, cool. so they certainly were um, under the Powhatan uh, reign, you know, these, these Indian villages were, um, were farming. That's what I was going to ask. Was there agriculture? Yeah. So, so what, th- what were they growing? I mean, I think they were, you know, obviously the the corn and the squash and and tobacco, and that was like a, a really big element um, during Pocahontas's time was her sharing and and those indigenous people sharing how to cure and dry tobacco, and mm. that was like the game changer, you know, economically speaking. Once um, uh, the English learned how the indigenous people dried tobacco, that really secured their economic stability in the region. Mm. Um, so uh, there's a lot there that kind of gets sure. uh, glossed over and forgotten about. Um, so it's it's an important step. It's interesting to think about that we're, um, you know, just now in the, in the midst of, uh, I don't know, an indigenous revival mm-hmm. in the state of Virginia. Hmm. Interesting. In Virginia specifically. Yeah, too, because there's, um, you know, a long history of these indigenous tribes, but they were never recognized. Um, so like the Padawamak tribe got their state recognition only, I want to say the early nineties. Mm. Um, so there's, uh, an element of, I've done a little research just on who would be right here because of the Shenandoah River. Right. And I know that there's some mounds on the Shenandoah River. Yeah. And there are some fields that were created by the tribes that lived here. Mm-hmm. Some fields that are used now were fields then that were like, you know, prescribed burns. Right. And um, I just was reading that there, this whole region had a lot of... Uh, you know, sacred hunting grounds along the Shenandoah River, which today there's national forests that right. I go hunt for turkey and whatnot on, yeah. in the same place. Right. Which is just so cool to think about. It is cool to think about. And I do think there was like a sort of a, a dividing element of um, those under the Powhatan Nation that were more sedentary and doing more agriculturally based um, farming hmm. and and fishing and and were somewhat stable in in the area where they were mm. living and then just as you get to this rugged area and you you venture off into the blue ridge the tribes were nomadic very interesting okay and so they likely kind of um probably formed relations with larger tribes and were absorbed into them as as a way of survival so there, there's that's why we know so little about them 
and probably um, Jefferson's Notes on Virginia is, if you haven't read that, it's pretty significant because he really captures what information was known about um, the indigenous tribes of, of this area before they, before they really vanished. Mm. Wow. Wow, that was incredibly interesting. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, should we switch gears? Yeah. Well, okay, so I'm assuming a lot of the people that listen to this know what United Plant Savers is. But for those that don't, tell us about your work. What is United Plant Savers? What's the purpose of it? What do you guys do? What's the mission? United Plant Savers is a very unique organization. It was founded 25 years ago by Rosemary Gladstar and a bunch of other concerned herbalists, growers, harvesters, diggers, um, out of the International Herb Symposium. And from what I've heard, the Rosemary also started the International Herb Symposium. That's in Boston. And that happens in Boston every other year, um, just on the outskirts at Wheaton College. And at one of these first gatherings, Rosemary brought up the discussion, is anybody else concerned about um, the increase in the herbal supplements industry and where these plants are coming from? And are these plant populations still abundant? And there was agreement that there was concern across the board. And so the organization was formed with the mission of conservation of native medicinal plants under the premises that uh, the that these plants, you know, um, be here for future generations. So for those that don't know anything about this, what, like, what does this even mean? Like, what are people doing? Like, maybe tell about how people go out and they dig, you know? What is that? What are the main issues? <clears throat> right, well, the main issue for sure is that uh, we have a very kind of secretive, unregulated trade in uh, medicinal plants. And so just to backtrack a bit, this entire region, and obviously I've learned all of this basically from Mm -hmm. you, this entire region of Appalachia is incredibly abundant with biodiversity and incredibly potent, powerful, and, um, you know, worthy, I mean, valuable monetarily of these medicinal plants, such as ginseng, um, golden seal, carry on from there. Right. Well, I think, you know, for whatever reason, um, this area, Appalachia especially, is really diverse in um, roots and barks, as people would say. Oh, cool. I haven't Uh, heard it like that. And so you have all these medicinal roots like ginseng, golden seal, cohosh, bloodroot. All of these are, um, you know, long-living perennial plants that when harvested, you're killing the plant. Mm -hmm. And the same when you're harvesting these inner barks of uh, Mm -hmm. trees like slippery elm or wild cherry, um, white oak. All these are um, uh, harvesting where, you know, you're you're killing the plant. So um, in that respect, there's a really rich history. And even... Um, you know, during Linnaeus's time when uh, people were, he was sending people out all over the world to collect knowledge on plants, people were coming back and they were saying, you know, how incredibly rich and diverse uh, this region of the world was and compared to other temperate forests and the abundance of medicinal plants. So, you know, this would have been in the 1700s. Hmm. And, um, 
And that's, uh, we have in North America a, a very rich tradition in herbalism that is called the eclectic um, uh, movement. And that was kind of a, <clears throat> a combination of, of eclectic practices that included um, knowledge and use of native medicinal plants. So there's, you know, a, a really rich history. And if you go back to even, you know, the 1600s and the 1700s, I mean, the um, this area was able to financially support itself because they were exporting incredible amounts of um, sassafras. Mm. And and then that's my favorite thing. There, that's my favorite thing in the woods. Mm-hmm. Favorite plant, sassafras. Yeah, making that tea is unbelievable. Right. It's so it's a root beer flavored tea. Right. So this was a very popular medicine because people thought it could cure venereal diseases and things mm. like that, and it was exported in large quantities. And and probably because it's just so incredibly fragrant, and um, there was there was an incredible demand for it. So and you had told me how the ginseng trade dates back into the 1600s, right? And, and that <clears throat> even Daniel Boone, um, you know, famous hunter, uh, bear hunter, who would you know use bears to make the oil to sell for, um, you know, lamp oil and for greasing guns and whatnot. He was even really big into the, into the ginseng trade. Absolutely. And And that was going over to Asia. And that was going over to Asia. And actually the first, um, article of trade that, uh, the United States as a free nation traded with China was ginseng. Wow. In the 1670s. Yeah. Well, after independence. After independence. Okay. Interesting. So there's, but yeah, it was being traded quite extensively before, but it was being, you know, shipped out by the French Mm. up in Quebec or um, the English. So back to United Plant Savers. Mm -hmm. So basically there's these, there are a handful of plants. Oops, sorry. There are a handful of plants which have become valuable Mm -hmm. or have always been valuable basically for hundreds of years. And now there's issues with they're vanishing. These are at risk. They're being over foraged. Right. And so United Plant Savers. Well, it's a combination of things. Yeah. United Plant Savers is focused on this issue in particular, which makes it a completely unique organization. Nobody else is really focusing on this topic. But um, what Rosemary Gladstar was speaking to in the early 1990s was the fact that you had this eclectic movement. You had trade in medicinal plants as a, as a huge um, historical marker in the United States history, but also uh, that it kind of vanished because allopathic medicine took over and there wasn't a demand for these medicinal plants. And then the kind of rebirth of, of herbalism and um, the... Uh, herbal supplements industry, you know, we she, we were witness to kind of a revival, which put, you know, additional pressure on the harvesting of these plants in conjunction with the loss of habitat mm-hmm. and deforestation, all these things um, kind of creating the perfect storm for really putting these plants at risk. And there's a revival right now, right? A revival, you mean in the herbal movement? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it's a six billion dollar industry. Mm. It it it's grows at ten to fifteen percent every year. I mean it's really one of the largest um, uh, growing industries in the United States. So one thing I've learned about through you and through some of the other nonprofits that you've linked me with, who uh-huh. hired me to do illustrations, is uh, this idea of forest farming. So that's a major 
a major um, yeah conservation through cultivation is is kind of a principle. <clears throat> I don't think we're going to end the herbal products industry, and we want these plants to be available. So how can we do so in a sustainable manner and kind of transitioning to where we can cultivate these plants um, in a forest environment in a that way traditionally that traditionally would be really hard to grow on, on a, in traditional agriculture, right? Absolutely. And can, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, these are plants that you know thrive in a forest environment. Mm -hmm. So there, there's an I you know there's kind of various levels of forest farming. Whether you're you know just tending. Um, an already existing population so that you can be sustainably harvesting from it um, to the or to the extent of, you know, very intensive um, cultivating of these plants in the woods. So there's, you know, different different approaches. Um, but certainly we're trying to encourage um, a use of the forest where these plants can be cultivated in a way, that they can supply a sustainable source. And it's really, um, this was something that was done in the 17 and 1800s mm. when there was a demand for ginseng and golden seal especially. And there's all kinds of agricultural pamphlets and, um, and resources that were available to those that were growing these plants. Um, then we've kind of lost that lineage mm. because the demand for those plants kind of disappeared. And now we're 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 seeing that demand increase and and how can we bring back these principles that's and you guys have been working with a lot of small farmers herbalists whatnot especially in Appalachia West Virginia Ohio to basically um, get them started mm -hmm. to uh, to grow these plants in an agroforestry mindset and it's you know it's a long-term vision because these plants are long-lived perennials and it um, it takes, you know, uh, decades to, you know, establish these populations. So it's, um, it's something that, you know, isn't going to happen overnight, but that's what we're working towards. We have the forest grown verification program where we mentor and verify those that are, um, cultivating these plants. And well, then so for, as an example, let's use ginseng. So, um, it takes a long time to grow. Correct. And you have people out there foraging them, and then they're basically kind of depopulating the area of ginseng because it takes so long. Can you kind of speak to that? Well, I think ginseng is, you know, a little bit unique in that there is, there's always been such a consistent demand. So mm. um, there are those individuals that, you know, have been uh, out there planting ginseng seed for generations and, and, and decades. Um, it's just not very well documented. Um, that being said, you you have that kind of aspect also with those that go out and forage um, ginseng on on private or public lands and um, harvest it for the ginseng trade. It's very. It might take ten years or more to become a big a big root. Ideally, the root set you know, sell for the most money or roots that are 30, 40 years old. Wow. Um, those, uh, the, you know, there's different kind of markets for ginseng, but certainly the minimal amount of time um, is, you know, sort of seven to 10 years. Okay. And, yeah. and for someone listening who's not an herbalist, what is there, what's ginseng? What, I mean, what is it? Why is it used? 
Well, ginseng's sort of the the panacea, right? The cure all, and it's known as an adaptogen, and it has unique geosinicides that help the body um, adapt to environmental stresses. So it's really kind of a a plant of our of our time, so to speak, and. Mm. Um, uh, certainly in, in Chinese herbal medicine, it's seen as like potentizer. Mm. So they would add ginseng to other herbal formulas to kind of, you know, potentize the, um, the overall remedy. So it's, it's got different, um, you know, ways that it's used culturally speaking. Uh, another interesting aspect of ginseng was that it was, uh, seen as a cure for um, the opium crisis mm. and that took place in, in China. And so um, you could see how uh, an adaptogen could um, really help bring back the chi, that, that flame, that vital energy that stimulates the body to kind of recuper- recuperate from, you know, opium or uh, where you're – your body's being really drained of its chi. Um, so sadly, we have this opioid epidemic, and we have in this, the heart of Appalachia. In the heart of Appalachia, and then we, you know, the the two are so interconnected. But there's there's just this culture of harvesting ginseng to sell it to the Chinese, and and not so much um, a culture of how to how to use this plant medicinally. And it's like it's speaking to us, but we're not able to hear what it's saying. Mm, I love that. Mm. Well, the theme of this podcast seems to be history. So, so let's, <laughs> let's, which I love, I love hearing this. And uh-huh. you've taught me so many interesting things. So just to go a step further. So the ginseng has been used, was grown in China mm-hmm. it, for hundreds and hundreds, hundreds, hundreds of years. It was well, depleted. Right. And then when, I guess, when, uh, America was opened up to Europe. They just kind of, re, you know, the settlers discovered it in Appalachia, which was obviously already being used by the indigenous people. Mm-hmm. But then they started selling it to Asia. Right. And so now a lot of that wild ginseng, because it's been depleted there, mm-hmm. has been coming out of Appalachia. Yeah, and there's something really interesting to note in that it was actually the uh, North Korea and, you know, up into... China, it was a very small region where um, mm. ginseng existed native to that to China, it versus the Appalachian region, which you can find ginseng from Canada all the way down through Georgia. Mm. So the I think we've been able to sustain such mm. a, a an incredible amount of pressure mm. and trade over, you know, the last few hundred years because, you know, ginseng was uh, over such a huge amount of area, whereas in China it was very Is it totally gone? Region. I don't know that it's, you know, totally gone. I mean, a great book is The Ginseng Hunter, which is the story of a ginseng hunter in North Korea. Hmm. Um, we haven't, it's the same author as, as The Pearl Diver. Hmm. But... Uh, Yes, so it it was very much depleted, you know, out of the wild um, to to the extent that it couldn't be commercially harvested. And so most of the um, ginseng in China uh, comes from cultivated source. And certainly uh, South Korea 
is um, very well known for its um, red ginseng and its cultivated ginseng and then how they how they dry it. Interestingly enough, the first people to really learn how to cultivate ginseng were monks in Japan hmm. and seeds were smuggled from the Korean peninsula into Japan and they um, mastered the art of growing ginseng and then sold it back to China during the opium wars as a cure for um, severe opium addiction. Wow. So and that's the 1800s? Somewhere in there? Uh, yeah, 17, 1800s. Okay. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. So pretty pretty fascinating. Um, and a lot of this, you know, is uh, not well known or, or talked about. Um, so here we are in North America. We have this incredible legacy of medicinal plants, but yet we have complete plant blindness in mm. our society. And we dedicate very few resources to protecting native plants, medicinal plants, biodiversity in general. Um, such a small percentage. I mean, in the state of Virginia, it's like the Department of Conservation and Natural Resources is, you know, just a, a handful of people that okay, well, are responsible for the entire state's um, uh, biological diversity and uh, federal government um monies that go to these causes is just it's it's minuscule and how people so plants even though they may be on the endangered species list mm. don't even have the protection of animals so we have very little um resources and uh so that's something i've mentioned a handful of times that i'd like to mention here so you know obviously i'm still super green to all this i just moved down here 3 years ago but right off the bat, I got into hunting. I've gotten into fishing and trapping. All of these things have like incredibly detailed regulations. Right. And um, I don't understand, is it just why there isn't that for plants? Like basically, you know, there are rules to everything. So yeah. you can't even really right. become greedy. Like I'm, it says you are allowed this many right. deer in this county mm -hmm. or this type of deer. And you're only allowed to use this device, this type of gun to get it or, and the seasons, these dates and you pay. And basically I buy a license. Um, and that money goes right back to the state to carry on with their conservation work, to pay their biologists and whatnot. Right. And biologists are the ones that go out and create these rules. Mm -hmm. um, and something I've been thinking about before I let you pick up on this topic is I even thought it was interesting because um, the hunting license, say for a deer, and for hunting, you're not allowed to profit from an animal. I can't sell the meat. That's totally illegal. Right. Um, so that license is like, 17 bucks or mm -hmm. 20 bucks. Now the trapping license is almost $50. Mm -hmm. And my assumption is because you actually are allowed to make a profit from fur bearers. You're allowed to right. sell those pelts into the fur market mm -hmm. and you can sell glands into the lure making um, market for other trappers. So how come there isn't a $50 license to go out and harvest plants if you're going to make, if it's going to go into a commercial market? Right. What, so why does this not exist? I, I mean, I think it's it's a cultural thing in that we just see plants as an abundant resource hmm. that, you know, doesn't need um, the same care as the hunting and fishing and trapping. So, uh, I don't know. I, I think that the— there, there just aren't the biologists that are being paid 
Is that what it is in every state to be solely focused on plants? I just don't think there's the political will to support it. Hmm. <clears throat> so um, certainly ginseng, um, there are um, each, it, it gets confusing because ginseng and golden seal are regulated under CITES. Oh, okay. And I think they also do regulations for certain fur bearers and whatnot. Like the, if I get a bobcat, <clears throat> right. you have to report it to CITES. Right. Right. So that's the Convention of International Trade on Endangered Species. Okay. And um, that's a treaty that the United States signed on to. And it plants get put on Appendix 1 or Appendix 2. Appendix 2 means they can be traded, but with certain rules and regulations in place. And Appendix 1 means that all trade in that species is illegal. Hmm. So um, Fish and Wildlife oversees that program. And then every state that uh, is allowed to trade and export um, ginseng has to make up their own rules and regulations. Okay. So it becomes very confusing. Well, like with the hunting, all that state to state. It's state to state, and um, uh, and then often it's you know one person within that state that does this like part time. Mm. So there's it's it's a very underfunded. Um, program that, you know, has a lot of issues that are difficult to resolve. So is it naive of me to think that one helpful way to move forward would be to create these permitting and systems? I mean, is that possible or is it just, it? it's just... I do think it's possible. I think that, you know, in other countries, for example, Bulgaria has a National Medicinal Plant Act that, you know, oversees and regulates the plant trade. And they put forth um, uh, information on to properly how to properly harvest these mm. plants. And they, herb companies, um, put forth how much plant material they need for that year. And then um, harvesters are then, you know, given specific permits for harvesting that amount of plant material. So uh, other countries around the world where um, medicinal plants are seen as, you know, a viable economic resource, they're, they're managed. Interesting. And, and for some reason, <clears throat> our trade here is just um, completely unregulated and doesn't really have um, protections in place. And it's, it's just kind of been this, uh, subsistence, um, economy that, uh, is secretive. Hmm. And I think people would, would rather, you know, who are in the industry would rather keep it that way. I don't know. Hmm. I mean, I'm making general assumptions, but I do think. Well, because it's just a free for all. Yeah. I do think that, um, if we're going to protect, these plants into the future, I do think we need a National Medicinal Plant Act that um, dedicates resources to the protection of these plants. It's interesting in that, you know, you have the native plant societies that are very active, but they have no understanding or connection to the trade hmm. that is happening. And even those botanists and people that work for, you know, um, NatureServe or work for the um, Department of you know, natural resources within their state uh, have no connection to understanding the trade in these plants. 
And that's what makes it very difficult because people look to United Plant Savers, you know, is this plant, like how endangered is this plant? Mm. How at risk is this plant? Well, we can only make those decisions based on, you know, evidence and and research, but there's very little of that taking place. So I wanted to ask that. So from my very little understanding, I'm, I believe that each state has biologists that go around and study all the animals to figure out the populations, what seems to be the proper level of harvest every single year it Uh changes. So um, how does United Plant Savers, you know, who does not have biologists Mm -hmm. in every single state across America, how are you guys figuring out what's at risk? well, we're gathering <clears throat> the first, um, you know, rendition of the at risk and to watch list really just came from people's hands on experience in the trade and, and being deeply connected to these mm. plants. So people were putting forth their um, their knowledge and to much more grassroots. <clears throat> it's with the, the people doing it. It's with the diggers and with yeah, the traders. Yeah, that's how the first at risk and to watch list came about. Um, after that, under the leadership of Kelly Kitchard and Lisa Castle, the at-risk um, tool was developed, which is based on uh, a similar tool that was developed to determine how to manage fisheries in the ocean. Um, so you can go online, you can check out the at-risk tool, but it's... Um, Where? A, on, at United Plants? Yeah, on, on the website. And it's a series of questions that, you know... Um, that you answer and depending on um, the, you know, a higher score means more at risk and a lower score means less at risk. Um, and things that impact that are um, how long the plant takes to uh, mature and reproduce, what part of the plant you're harvesting, um, what kind of demand is out there and how fragile and limited is the habitat to which that plant grows. Um, so it, it's a pretty interesting tool um, that you can, you know, go through and ask questions in regards to a specific plant. I think it can give you a pretty good sense of, you know, um, what level of concern you should have when when sourcing these plants. But it's very difficult uh, to um, to provide definitive information mm-hmm. because um, we just don't have the resources to understand what's really going on out there. Is there a certain plant that you can use as an example that you guys are extremely worried about? Well, Hawaiian sandalwood, uh, and and again, this goes to the fact that, you know, the United States is the only country in the world where sandalwood um, grows that it's not regulated. Mm. Um, Sandalwood is, uh, you know, one of the most valuable trees. Hawaii is the epicenter of sandalwood diversity, six species out of eighteen are in, are endemic to the Hawaiian Islands. Two of those are on the endangered species list, and yet um, anybody can still cut down uh, sandalwood trees mm. and uh, distill them into essential oil or you export could go, the wood. Um, I could go and cut an endangered one, and there'd be no there'd re- be no penalty. There'd be no, right. nothing. Well, certainly, um, if it's your private land. You know, you can, there's nothing stopping you from cutting those trees down. Mm. Which is, if it were an animal, that there's no way you could do that. You, if it's an endangered animal, right. even if it's on your own private right. own property. Which goes back to my point that plants and mm-hmm. animals are treated differently mm-hmm. under the Endangered Species Act. 
So there's very little plant protection in place. Um, and uh, it's, it's just tragic. Uh, well, perhaps for a little bit of uh, polar opposite hopefulness, mm-hmm. is there, are there any plants that you guys are like have a lot of hope for that seem to be doing really well right now? Well, interestingly enough, I do think that uh, OSHA is um, thriving in the environmental changes that are happening in, in high elevation habitat. Um, the loss of uh, trees, you know, dying um, are kind of feeding, uh, the OSHA is feeding off of them. Wow. So, these, so, so why are the trees dying? It's a, it's a boar out there? It's a pine boar or something? Exactly. I mean, there's several different insects um, that are wreaking havoc uh, in the Rocky Mountains, in, in right? the Rocky Mountains, and also um, fire, and OSHA is thriving from this, and OSHA seems to thrive off of um, death and decay of of wow. trees. So, uh, it and just also, in case someone's listening who doesn't know, OSHA is uh, incredibly sought after, potent medicine, especially for the respiratory system. Right. Mm-hmm. It's um a very strong antiviral and it's often referred to as bear root because the bears would be seen in the early spring digging up the OSHA root and um, it has a really unique, beautiful fragrance and it's volatile oils and they're known to, to rub these oils all over them, um, probably as a, as a, their own um, health remedy. Love that. So we won't, we won't say anything, anything specific, but I have been with you out in the Rockies with some of your friends, with your boyfriend, and we were standing in an, an entire mountainside of OSHA. Yes. That was neat. Mm-hmm. That was cool to see you dug it up, and we, we got to smell it. The, the odor is so incredible. It's so potent. We tasted a little piece of it. And the roots have these hairs on it that look like the fur of bear. Mm. Don't you think? Okay. Those... I, I, have, I have to recall that. Uh-huh. Um, but yes, um, so I do think uh, the, the tricky part about OSHA is that it only grows in these real high elevation habitats, mm. and most of that land is under the supervision of the um, national forest. Okay. And uh, sadly, a lot of this land is leased out to um, cattle farming, and, and what we've seen is uh, with the tree loss, there's um, less water, less snow in the mountains, hmm. and these animals like cattle are uh, roaming further, hmm. higher up the mountain for foraging and and to find water. So they're the biggest threat hmm. to. So they'll overgraze stuff like OSHA. Yeah, hmm. they and OSHA can withstand quite a bit of grazing, um, but it's really the hooves, right? Because hmm. The hooves are so big on the cattle that they um, compact the soil. Hmm. And that's um, the real detriment of of letting cattle uh, roam high elevation ecosystems on hmm. public lands where n- nobody's really benefiting hmm. except the rancher. Hmm. Um, so these are the things... Uh, uh, that threaten plant populations. Um, it's it's complicated. It's never as simple uh, that you can summarize in a sentence, right? I love hearing you talk about all this. It's all super interesting. 
Um, I do want to get into maybe some personal stories, but okay. I don't think we can leave this topic without telling a little bit. Because okay, so you hired me through United Plane Savers to do a bunch of signs, and so we've gone on a handful of road trips together from here to the sanctuary. And you told me all you know glimpses of what we're talking about now. But one thing that you got to talk about on the podcast, back to ginseng, is there is this incredibly strange black market. Like you got to say a few words about that. I mean, basically, ginseng is—it's not just—it's um, not just uh, prized for its medicinal value, but there's this underground black market, basically for these enormous roots, just as a um, token of um, oh, what's the right word? Like not not quite success, but it's a. How would you? Yeah, describe I mean, that? if you were, were a wealthy Chinese person, you know, you would have this uh, beautiful root that would be sewn on with, you know, gold thread on a red background that would be framed. And it's a, it's a, a status symbol. Status. That's what I was looking for. Um, and these, you, and I think you told me these can go up into the hundreds of thousands of yeah, dollars. Right. So, um, you know, sadly, uh, you know, the Chinese market is, is so well insulated and controlled that, you know, a digger may sell a root or a pound of root for eight hundred to twelve hundred dollars a pound, and that might consist of say a hundred to two hundred roots, depending on the size. And an individual root could sell for twenty five thousand dollars in China. So I mean, and, it's, I mean, it's the ultimate ripoff. And uh, <clears throat> if you go back to the kind of folklore and history of ginseng. In um, Chinese mythology and folklore, it's it's known to bring balance between the spirit world and the human world. So it's beyond a status culture, a status symbol. It's it's also like um, protection, hmm. you know, a, a belief in in protecting that sacred balance between the spirit world and the human world. Mm. Um, and, and the other thing that you would see would be the testicles of a deer. Oh, so dried, dried, I'm going to do that. Dried deer testicles and a, and a ginseng root next uh, to each other, next to each other Wow, would be like, you know, the ultimate. Wow. And, um, it's, it's super fascinating and, and, you know, kind of hard to grasp because it, it involves breaking down and being led into, you know, cultural secrets that, um, you know, I was talking to somebody on the phone the other day and we got into the topic of ginseng and he said, well, I went into a, a store in San Francisco to to buy some ginseng and there was a bunch of Chinese people. The minute I walked in the door, everybody stopped talking. Oh my God. <laughs> so that's, and they they know, it's like a brotherhood. They mm. they know not to break that barrier and therefore they've, they've controlled the ginseng market Um at the at the cost of you know the digger who can't you know get the real value and so it's it's the ultimate it's the ultimate ripoff so there's multiple things going on as you mentioned with the black market one of the biggest ginseng busts that happened a few years ago took place in West Virginia and they raided a home um, that was known to sell heroin and, and pharmaceutical pills. And when they got into the home, what they found was just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pounds of ginseng. 
So what was going on, it's an underground economy. You can go out and dig that root and then you can trade it for pills. Wow. And so it's totally linked into the to the illegal drug trade. Right. And nobody is teasing that apart or or diving into it. I mean, it's, you know, there's a lot of stories that have been written about ginseng, even in current current media, but it's just regurgitating surface information. Nobody has really dug into um, the the deep connection between the opioid crisis and plants as um, so you're saying an underground f- trade. So folks with drug problems are actually going out and digging the roots mm-hmm. to sell to get drugs. Yes. Wow. Well, they don't have to sell the root for money. Sorry, that's what I meant. They're they, literally going and digging and trading the root for right. drugs. Mm-hmm. Wow. Absolutely. Wow. Um, you know what comes to mind that I think is interesting about that huge um, that huge gap between the digger and then the person, the final product? Right. You know, because I know you have friends that live in very impoverished um, parts of Virginia yeah. in Appalachia who have, at least in their past, done some of this digging yeah. and then now they're trying to do it in a more sustainable way but just the difference between that incredibly impoverished community and then where it ends up in some billionaire's uh bedroom or right. living room yeah it's a big uh it's a big un, um it's a big topic when it comes to social justice mm. and there's you know all kinds of elements of this and and really the the crux for me and the um herbal trade industry is that often it's the most vulnerable people that are exploited. Hmm. Um, And yet it's being sold as, you know, a healing remedy, right? Mm. Mm, Interesting. And so that's, you know, something that's, you know, really hard to, um, in my mind, uh, come to grips with. Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah, what came to mind that I just wanted to mention was when I did this fur handling class last winter, it was even though the fur industry is not really in America anymore, a lot of it is supposedly in Russia and in Asia. Mm -hmm. I just thought if it were 100 years earlier that I was in an Appalachian part of southern southwestern Virginia, and I was with some of the roughest men that mm-hmm. I've ever seen in my life. I mean, I had great conversations with them, but they were rough. As Vivian, my girlfriend, mm-hmm. says in her New Zealand uh, lingo, they were rough as guts. Right. I mean, hardcore guys. Yeah. And you know, and some of them were like filthy, like mm-hmm. wearing you know their dirty jeans and dirty camo. But to, the difference between that person and then someone in like, you know, a huge city in Russia or in New York City wearing the fur that's so pristine and perfect right. and you know high fashion I thought wow these the, the gaps between these two things are right. unbelievable and then you know of course it makes me think of historically with the fur trappers out west like right. the the kind of guy that would have been out there doing that like living this super rough life where your lifespan is like 3 years mm-hmm. and then people in New York and Philadelphia and in London wearing you know the highest of society wearing what those guys are out doing. I just think that's interesting. Yeah, um, it is interesting. Um, honestly, this stuff is riveting. I could listen to this. It's interesting because when we talk, it you really, it seems as though sometimes I, it'll be hard to get information from you. Uh-huh. But when you like lock into a topic, I mean, it's 
actually, it's surprisingly and shockingly, I mean, I'm just like, I could listen to this literally for hours. <laughs> um, no, okay, so the, our new Miss Nature, the point in this podcast, do you have any stories that kind of, of something strange or spiritual or um, just a powerful experience with nature as the theme in some way, shape, or form? I mean, maybe it's, I don't know. I mean, I don't feel like you haven't really, I, there's nothing you've told me in the past that I think you could say here, but I know you've lived in the jungle when you were studying ethnobotany. Um, I'm assuming, I know you've mentioned a few things to me where you have quite a rich spiritual life and have gotten messages from plants and, and whatnot. So I don't know, is there a story? I was really intrigued and inspired, certainly by Richard Evan Schulte's, um, when I came across the book, The Healing Forest, uh, when I was a student at Boston University. And I, I became, you know, something uh, really clicked in, in his writings that he experienced in his trips to the Amazon and understanding a deeper relationship between uh, healing plants and and the cultures that he studied and lived with. So I was very determined to go to the Amazon, and I uh, ended up writing a letter to Kat Harrison of Botanical Dimensions after reading about her time in Peru at the Sachamama Ethnobotanical Garden. And uh, I went um, under her guidance and introduction to live with Francisco Montes, who... Uh, oversaw the Sachamama Ethnobotanical Garden. And I lived uh, with his family in Iquitos, and I also lived um, out at the garden itself. You know, Francisco Montes is, you know, mestizo that um, uh, was, a, I believe, a cousin to Pablo Amaringo, who um, was a shaman and uh, became a, a very famous painter in um, Pucallpa, which is uh, a, another small Amazonian town. And it was during the Shining Path that um, Francisco was given these plants and encouraged to uh, move to Iquitos, where it was safer to um, safeguard these plants. There are many different uh, Amazonian tribes um, in that region. Um, the Bora, the Shipibo um, were the two that um, were, were, you know, uh, close to where the garden was. So, I mean, there's I, just so many different um, Amazonian tribes. I, I very much thought that would be my path to live with indigenous cultures and document that connectivity to plants where I felt it was, you know, alive and still in practice. And through my uh, journeys of, you know, doing um, ayahuasca at Sachamama, I got a very clear message. I think it's difficult to put into words um, an experience when you're in an altered state of mind. Um, because things are happening that we don't really have um, adequate vocabulary for. But uh, all my experiences... 
in in doing ayahuasca and kind of you know going in going into a trance where you're um, you're on a spiritual journey and in those moments often I think what happens is you know your your spirit entered your spirit is able to separate from the physical confines of your human body and that's where you know you read about people talking about spirits traveling in the form of an animal or the concept of shape-shifting but that veil between the uh, tangible physical world and the spirit world become blurred and you're hearing voices and sounds and really entering um, a different way to see your natural environment around you. And uh, if you could imagine in, in some, you know, visual form, I, I did feel like the earth was cracking open and I was sort of, you know, wedged in between um, this crack kind of, you know, holding ground. Um, and, and that's where, you know, a series of visions kind of uh, appeared to me and in part um, uh, our connection to the bigger celestial, celestial world around us. Um, and uh, in that moment, it just became you know, very clear to me that my path was eventually to return home to where I was from. And that was a difficult message to hear and one that um, I didn't really want to listen to. I had to go, I had to leave my environment to then have the perspective to then realize how fragile and endangered our world was and that perhaps in the Amazon those cultural ties were still so thick that uh, they were sustaining the biodiversity there and yet we didn't have those cultural ties here which made our environment even more fragile and um, imperiled and I think uh, maybe during that time period of the 1990s, you know, the Amazon was, you know, in the forefront of so many environmental campaigns that we were, you know, oh, we have to save. That's where the medicines exist. The Amazon, you know, save the Amazon before, you know, these undocumented medicines are gone. I don't know. That was kind of the mantra, right? But in reality, it never occurred to me how me- how much biodiversity was here in North America and how rich the medicinal plants were here and how little awareness there was to, you know, protect or or, um, be an advocate for them. So I would come home and I would see this environment differently. What was your biggest takeaway from living in that kind of a lifestyle? And learning from these people that were so connected to their environment. Well, I was able to um, uh, be a guide for Joseph Winters uh, collecting um, Amazonian uh, tobacco 
from different cultures. And I was able to go out on an expedition with um, Peter Gorman and, you know, several others during my time there collecting plants. But I, I not only collected plants and brought them back to um, enhance the collection at Sachamama, I also um, documented and translated a lot of the folklore and stories. Um, and for some time, I, when I came back, I would go around um, telling stories, like a storyteller. And that is something that I really learned uh, in my time there was the role of storytelling in cultures. And uh, these stories really um, solidify uh, those teachings of um, being fearful of nature and um, uh, the reciprocity um, between nature and humans and also, um, I guess, an, an element of um, that thin veil between the spirit and human world. It's so much more um, alive in, in everyday encounters. Is there a story that you can remember that, that would be appropriate to tell publicly? Well, there's, I mean, there, certainly the story of the Sachamama, which uh, is, you know, a, a mythical being, a very large snake that lives in the Amazon where some of the most, you know, sacred plants um, grow on the back of the Sachamama. And Francisco would tell the story of his mother who was sick and how he was sent out into the jungle to um, gather uh, a certain medicinal plant. And he wanders and comes across this small hill and he takes out his knife and he begins to dig up the plant and the earth starts to bleed and rumble. And so he realizes that he's on the back of the Sachamama. And he, you know, offers tobacco and song to, uh, to calm the Sachamama. And then he's able to bring the plant back and heal his mother. So these are the... Um, so epic. The incredible stories that, um, that come from... Um, I don't know. I would say they're they're hybrid stories because they're uh, a mix of the mestizo culture, which is a combination of the Spanish settlers and indigenous people hmm. intermarrying, and um, so it's it's a a really uh, rich folklore. And I well, do it's like think a living. It's like a living mythology. It's like a living mythology. There's a story. There's like a cultural myth, but uh -huh. then that your friend is living inside of yeah. it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So those are the things that I, I really, um, you know, gravitated towards and enjoyed kind of, you know, reliving those stories and that intersection between um, life and death and shape-shifting and transformation and in that these uh, trees are spiritual entities that, you know, are highly regarded for uh, 
for the incredible, you know, spirits that they are. I mean, these plants are really our ancestors. So to be living among that vitality and, and perspective um, definitely opened my eyes. And I think I brought those perspectives, you know, back to um, my work in doing the dissertation. And uh, when I studied the the Bull Run Mountains, which is, you know, a small mountain range between the coastal plains and the Blue Ridge, uh, one of the um, kind of treasures that I stumbled across was during the 1940s, there was a big folklore movement. And um, during the Great Depression, people were paid to go out into communities and to gather these um, folkloric stories. And uh, I'm so grateful that happened because if that hadn't happened, we would have, you know, um, lost that lineage that, you know, I, and I think this is something that um, uh, I think is really important to talk about is the element of, you know, we're all indigenous to this earth. And though we refer to indigenous cultures because they have that identity, we're all capable of having relationships with our environment. Mm -hmm. And within the Bull Run Mountains, it was really this area where, um, you know, indentured servants who were brought over might escape and go hide into the Bull Run Mountains. Or those from that, Europe? Huh? Indentured servants from Europe? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, those that had committed crimes or, you know, it was really um, a place where you would uh, run to hide. Hmm. And so people really had to carve out an existence for themselves. And they weren't necessarily indigenous mm -hmm. to the Bull Run Mountains. The, in, those tribes had were nomadic and they... They had left their mark on the mountain, but they weren't there when um, these different um, troublemakers, mm -hmm. you know, founded their way. And the folklore that they developed um, within their culture, which was fairly new, mm. had all the characteristics of indigenous folklore that that you would that you would see from you know, other stories and communities. So that to me was like really that fascinating. Is, neat. is there a story that you remember? Well, Simon Kenton was born in the Boren Mountains. So there's a tremendous amount of history um, and stories that revolve you know, around his life. I, you know what? I, th I have a Virginia folklore book and uh -huh. I think there's an entire chapter on stories about <clears throat> Simon Kenton. Right, exactly. And one of them is... Um, the growing tree. And a tradition among midwives would be once a baby was born, they would take a piece of hair off of their head and they would go out into the forest and they would cut a little chink in the bark and they would put the hair inside the bark. And the idea behind that is that as the child grew, the tree would grow. And so they would often pick um, a tulip poplar because it grows so straight and fast. But the midwife of Simon Kenton picked a sweet gum tree. And this tree was hit by lightning. Parts of it were cut to make a gun. You know, all these things that happened to this tree, but yet it continued to grow against all adversity. 
And that is deeply connected to why Simon Kenton had kind of a, a life of like nine cats or what is it? Nine lives or whatever. You know what I mean? Like so many things. He was thought dead on so many occasions and came back out of nowhere. And that is deeply tied um, in the folklore of the Boron Mountains to the midwife that picked this specific tree. And as the tree grew against adversity, Simon Kenton grew against adversity. And that link between um, a a tree guarding a human life's um, spirit as it grows into the world is, is really a beautiful concept. And um, I do think there's stories of um, growing trees from indigenous communities around the world. Do, do you know <clears throat> some of Simon's misadventures? Well, he, um, you know, had a jealousy interaction and, um, you know, he thought he had killed a man and that's why he left the Boron Mountains um, so that he wouldn't be killed himself. But it turns out the man he thought he killed actually didn't die. But Simon Kenton later goes off to, you know, live with um, different indigenous groups out west and and marries um, an indigenous woman and eventually comes back to the Bull Run Mountains later in life. So, the, you know, he, he's, he's kind of the iconic frontiersman that, you know— um, uh, survived just an incredible adversity and in, in being a, a pioneer in in the West mm. at a time when um, very few people were able to explore those parts of the country. Mm, I love that so much. I love all this folklore stuff. And that I want to ha- be a focus for this podcast is more folklore. So I love that you got to tell one both from the jungle and then right. one from right here in our mountains. Right. Um, so do you... I think the answer is obviously yes, but how do you, do you see trees as a spiritual being? I do. And can you describe that relationship or that knowing or what that means? I, I think it's hard to put into words, but I do think, um, you know, there's, um, an, an energy and, and life force to the to the plant world, um, almost you know very much so as a our our ancient ancestors, and I do think that the tree is actually our ancestors. What you're saying, yeah, and um, how so, or what does that mean? Well, I think that, you know, when you look at the, you know, geological history and and timeline of of life on this planet and the ability of plants to colonize and diversify and create this um, living network to which we can, uh, that, you know, sustains life on the planet, Mm. um, I think it does become a very spiritual thing. Um, I think we're just, you know, uh, being able to to understand it in a scientific capacity, but 
especially with the work of like Suzanne Samard and um, and the concept of the mother tree, the fact that there are mother trees in the forest. Yes, I've heard this. That are are nursing mm-hmm. the other trees and because they're not getting because because under the canopy they don't get enough sunlight, right? So the mother trees will feed them nutrients. Right. I mean, there's all kinds of exchanges that are happening. Um, and it really so makes the, you know, just as a fun, as a fun thing to think about. It's like it really brings an extra dilemma to the thought about not eating meat or like veganism because I think very soon we're going to figure out that plants are just as sentient as any animal. Yeah, they're sentient. I mean, if they're and, mothering their children, right. it's like what? Yeah. <laughs> Wow. Right. Yeah. And um, I think if we don't shift our perspective and, and understanding that it, it will be the end of us mm. because um, we're, we're really destroying the thing that we need the most. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember what just popped in my <clears throat> head is I remember camping one time on the Shenandoah River and uh, my sister my, went camping, my little sister, she went to sleep and I was just sitting by the fire and, you know, burning firewood and the the um flames were coming up and the heat was coming off of the fire and it was hitting the branches of a tree above so the branches were kind of um uh swimming in the current of the heat and i thought for a moment oh my god how cruel this tree that can't run it can't move right is watching me burn <laughs> one of its one of its uh family members or <laughs> something like that like oh my god yeah, and I think that's a, you know, um, what's the term? Anthrop- anthrop- yes, anthrop- anthropomorphizing. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I'm sure they're living on some other plane of existence. Yeah. That, that is totally irrelevant. <laughs> but I thought it was interesting in that moment. Yeah, and there's, you know, a lot of, a lot of interesting research in that regard to shift our perspective mm. and you know, Charles Darwin was doing all kinds of experiments, you know, trying to understand, um, uh, you know, where, where, where would a, a plant's brain be if it existed? Mm. And, um, you know, he surmised that it would be on the root tip. So if you could imagine, like, uh, plants are like a reverse, right? Their head is in the soil. Mm. Like, I love that. And so that's, you know. and Has anything come of that? Recently? Oh yeah. I mean his his original um theories on, you know, the root tip having um the capacity to 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 move and, and direct the plant, I mean, um has has been has been further solidified in scientific research. Hmm. Um so he, he very much uh was on to something when when he was making those um observations. God, that's cool. Uh-huh. And then I'm thinking about like from that documentary, uh, Fantastic Fungi. Right. With the whole mycelium, how it's kind of that brain looking neurons right. type thing. The roots are connected in there. Right. Very brainy. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's and then neat. that gets into the whole like doctrine of signatures right. and, um, you know, the history of alchemy and hmm. the occult and, you know, these, uh, wisdoms that you know nature has bestowed upon um humans that has been uh forgotten or <clears throat> has had to go underground 
to survive. <laughs> you know that you know that that element between you know balancing religious beliefs against um, the alchemy of nature mm. and how those things have been um, in competition for uh, gathering the the hearts and minds of of humans. And, mm. Do you communicate with plants like I've heard from a lot of other herbalists? I think people communicate with plants in all different capacities. I mean, I do um I know that <clears throat> I feel better when I'm mm. on a walk in the woods. I know mm. that um that there's something really intense about starting seeds. Mm. And that initial energy where the plant like pops up out of the um out of the seed and when we had uh much more we had a very large um CSA on the property and we had a huge greenhouse and we would you know just start thousands of plants and you would walk into that greenhouse um just as the plants were emerging and there was just like this energy of new growth that I think, you know, like you could just do like greenhouse therapy where you just like let people come and be in a greenhouse when there's all this like new growth. It's That's so interesting. I've never heard anyone say that before. Yeah. So um, I think plants, you know, communicate with people in, in different, different capacity. And I do think, um, especially with flower essences and when you're in that moment of making medicine, um, you know, you're, you're getting that energy from it. So I do, uh, I think that kind of the most empowering thing, um, that you can do if you're looking to communicate with plants is that, you know, uh, element of making your own medicine. I mean, that's really when, you know, the plant magic, you know, comes to life. It's a totally different experience, you know, making your own medicine and taking it versus, you know, going to the store and buying something. Oh, totally. I mean, that's just even with like the hunting to get your own meat. It's like any of that stuff is like right. mind-blowingly meaningful. Right. Um, so you're not, I mean, you're And not I do think, you know, I'm very much about bioregional herbalism. And I, I do think if you just take the time to learn about what plants are growing outside your door, all of a sudden you're going to be like, oh my God, that's the exact plant that I need. Right. Oh my God, I just read that this plant is good for whatever, and that's exactly my ailment. You know, I, I think there's an energy of, like, just being aware of the plants around you um, that are healing. You don't even have to go make the medicine. You just have to, like, open your mind and your heart to, like, why? Well, I've been thinking about this because— Is that dandelion in my yard? The backyard here <laughs> is completely swamped in passion flower. Yeah. I mean, it is like a— uh, it's like Jumanji. It's uh -huh. like taking over the right. house almost. Yeah. So something that me and Vivian need is obviously in the passion flower, which is calming, right. anti-anxiety, right? It kind right. of calms your anxiety, mm -hmm. helpful for sleep. Uh-huh. Nourishes the nervous system. Okay. It's right here in our backyard. Yeah. So we've we've messed around with it a little bit. We've dried some to make teas. We haven't done any tincturing, I don't think, but it's cool to know it's right there in the backyard. Right. Um what was I going to say? Oh, I guess for people listening, you're not quite an herbalist, but you do lots of herbal stuff. 
Right. I, I mean, I definitely in, grow herbs, incorporate them into my life, and but I don't. You don't really make medicine for other people. I do and I don't. I guess um, there is that element of. Uh, I, I often let people come here and harvest their own medicine. Right. And um, I don't I don't charge for my services or actively seek to help people um, mm -hmm. in, in that capacity. Is there a certain plant that you like working with the most or, or one of your uh, a list of favorites? Well, as you mentioned before, I mean, I do think um, elderberry is, you know, such an easy plant to grow and has so many benefits to um, all the birds and, and mm. wildlife. And uh, so, you know, collecting the the flowers and making a hydrosol and drying the flowers for tea and then uh, harvesting the berries and making elderberry syrup um, is something that I do quite often and mm -hmm. did sell through my apothecary. Yeah, that stuff was good too. You and you were making it with your daughters. Mm -hmm. Um and we would we would do uh you know, combination of herbal drinks mm. um with the elderberry syrup, but uh often I had, you know, people that requested it that I would, you know, make it for and, and sell it. And now um as you know, we've been growing cannabis for two years now through the state um, cannabis program. And, uh, though the Paris apothecary closed during the pandemic, I have, uh, done some herbal formulas and I'm looking so you to want to talk about that a little more. So basically you have a garden plot here mm -hmm. that your boyfriend had done exceptionally well, Vincent, he's, yeah. you know, he grows in a very impressive vegetable garden, but now like half of it has been for hemp cannabis and, you guys are making a series of products. Right. And Vivian and I have been testing them and they work fantastically. I hurt my back fleshing a raccoon. My, I could barely get out of bed and I started taking the uplift in the morning and I took the relax at night right. and in a, it was gone in a few days. Nice. Um, and, and one thing that I was so excited about was last summer, Vivian and I went camping and I found my first chaga there was actually, thankfully, there was a bunch of chagas on a bunch of different trees, but we found one to harvest and we've been drinking that tea a lot. But I gave a bunch of my friends and family a bunch of that chaga and mm -hmm. you actually used some of that chaga in one of your products. I did. Which is so neat to yeah. me. Yeah, yeah. And um, lion's mane that was harvested right here wild on the property. And so, yeah, I came up with five different formulas that um, are spigerically extracted um, through Evolved Alchemy out in Colorado. And, um, do you want to say what, cause I heard you talking on other podcasts and you told me a little bit about it, but what is that process? What is that? Spigeric. Yeah. Spigeric's an, an, an ancient, um, way of doing alchemical extraction. And, uh, it, it starts with a traditional tincture. So you're tincturing the plant material and alcohol and then you're straining that tincture, and then what you're left with is that plant material. And then that plant material is then um, slowly burned into an ash, and then that ash is re-tinctured hmm. with the mother tincture. Hmm. And so what you're getting is, um, you know, I don't 
full spectrum is kind of, you know, an overused term, but you're getting the salts and minerals of the plant material along with the um, traditional tincture. So mm. I don't know, in a way it kind of feels um, to some extent like uh, a combination of, you know, traditional tincturing with the homeopathic element. I was going to say homeopathic because <clears> my <throat> the my Jungian uh, analyst is really into homeopathy. Mm-hmm. So I've learned a tiny bit just right. through him talking about it. And it had, it sounds like that. Yeah. Um, so it's certainly that element of like less is more. Mm. And uh, you're able to, um, you know, potentize the uh, medicinal plant um, medicine by including, you know, the salts and minerals um, of the plant mm. as well. So it's it has a long tradition and it takes um, a lot more time and um, passion mm. to uh, do a spigeric extraction. So where can someone buy one of these things? Well, you can you can purchase them from the Paris Apothecary website, though it's hopefully going to be revamped in the new year. And I really want to... So I'll put a link so yeah. people can check that out. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, um, and it's small batches, right? Mm-hmm. So this is like, you know, it's it's limited. And, and it was really cool for me. I didn't help this year, but last year I helped Vincent. He was drying in your house from the rafters. You mm-hmm. guys were drying all the hemp plants and then helping him cut the, I helped him cut all the little buds. My mom came by to right. help one day. I had some other friends and Vivian, we all right. helped cutting the buds. That was a really interesting process. And then you sent that out right. to these folks and Yeah, the Colorado. curing, the curing of the cannabis is uh, a really important process. And um, I, I don't think... Uh, you know, it's it's hard to really give the the care and attention that's needed when you're um, growing on you know a really large mm. um, basis, sure, so to speak. And I think there's a lot of education that um, is needed in in the cannabis world for people to really understand um, what's really going into these uh, CBD products mm. and. It's uh, been kind of the wild west and right. not, not very not very well regulated or confusing because you have state and federal regulations and um, so it's uh, a little unnerving um, what kind of products are out there right now and I think it's just I often say this it's the same thing as the food movement if you were to go back twenty five years um, nobody cared about where their food came from mm-hmm. nobody knew who their farmers were. And that whole movement of getting to know your farmers, of directly supporting um, farms that are producing your food. And I think that's uh, where we're headed in in the herbal world. At least I hope so. Because I'd like to think as, uh, you know, we're it's like levels of consciousness. Hmm. You know, people get really aware of where their food comes from. But maybe they're not thinking about what they're buying off the shelf in Target. Hmm. And so... Maybe what we'll witness over the next few decades is just a total conscious shift in um, understanding where our medicine comes from. Mm-hmm. I love that. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, maybe as we kind of close this up, there's no way I can let you leave this podcast without <laughs> talking about the book, your book project that you've been writing a little bit. You had this book idea that you even 
you, I think a Chelsea Green was even going to sign off on if if you get it off the ground. Right. Well, I've done a lot of research on okay. parasitic medicinal plants, and the, that would I, be the the theme of the book. The idea of the book would be to tell this um, early history of of how we began to perceive um, parasitic plants, medicinal parasitic plants, um, in folklore mm. and in the ecosystem, and then understanding the role of parasitic um, plants on a, on a global scale. And when I first got into this, um, I was fascinated by a few different parasitic plants, but then I realized that actually parasitic plants can be found in almost any ecosystem, and they really demonstrate the interconnected interconnection of of the living world on this planet and can you list us a few here in our woods that would be the focus for the book well there's lots of different ways that plants are parasitic and so certainly um uh the indian pipes on the property I was just going to say that are, those are so beautiful are microheterotrophic which um means that they They've evolved to no longer photosynthesize, and uh, they're completely dependent on these mycorrhizal relationships that then connect them to other plants that they then gather important nutrients from. They're kind of in, in a class of their own. Um, and this is a so th- they're they have ghostly legends because they're literally white or translucent, right? And we're, you know, there's a lot of um, different orchid species that they've been able to document, you know, over time that have evolved to no longer produce chlorophyll. But there's also um, a host of other plants that are parasitic or semi-parasitic, like the sandalwood, that uh, can photosynthesize but needs a host plant to... um, uh, continue to grow over a long period of time. Mm. And often those host plants are in the Fabiaceae family, which you know are plants that are known to be nitrogen fixers in the soil. Mm. So there's um, you know certainly this element of understanding uh, how medicinal plants function in the ecosystem is, in essence, uh, medicine in itself. Mm. And that's what... I think the journey of somebody who's learning about medicinal plants is that as they become more curious to understand the medicinal properties of these plants, they then start to realize what role these plants serve in the ecosystem. And that's the that's the true healing awareness that, you know, we need on this planet. Um if we don't shift our perspective of um, how plants serve all these ecosystem services and why we need uh, trees to cool the planet, mm. um, if we don't figure those really obvious things out and, and change some of our policies, I mean, we're, we're on a path of no return, I guess. So are you hopeful or are you... Pessimistic. I think you have to be hopeful to continue. I think there's a lot of humans doing really incredible yeah. stuff. And, and 
um, maybe it's maybe it's hard to see the cumulative effect oh. of um, you know what people are are doing and working on. Um, so I, I I do remain hopeful because I I can also take a step back and realize that you know my life on this planet is such a small blip <laughs> in, in the bigger continuum of time and I do think that um, we 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 can shift the paradigm and maybe we're just seeing the seeds of the of that mm. shift and mm. maybe you know in three or four hundred years people mm. will look back and they'll be like oh this was the time when you know there was this movement um that you know created a shift i don't know i mean i i or 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 it could just be you know total doom and gloom and and those that survive this time period will look back and they'll be like why didn't they do something different mm. <laughs> and i do i do fear for you know my children and and what challenges mm. and skills they're going to need to survive this um time period i think we're here in this you know bubble um but there's you know so much um suffering on the planet and so many different conflicts and uh, the biggest wildlife crime taking place is the uh, illegal deforestation mm. of the ancient forests and we're we're witnessing that right now um, so uh, that being said it's what's amazing about nature is just it's incredibly forgiving and resilient mm-hmm And in many ways, that's like the lesson of God or, you know, Mm. um, what Jesus was, you know, preaching in his, you know, Sermon on the Mountain um, was this capacity to forgive and Mm. be reborn. Mm. So maybe there's hope for us. I don't know. Mm. All right. Well, I feel like... (laughs) You feel like this is a pretty good spot to kind of wrap it up? Yeah, I don't I mean I I do think and maybe you know whether whether or not this makes the cut or not, but um I think it would be kind of fun to relive the young yin. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and then you can decide if it no, I or maybe totally it becomes agree. its own its own since we're here and all mic'd up. Yeah, I had someone say that they think it's very funny how in every episode I say it, how long it takes me to bring up Jung, uh-huh. and this has been the longest okay. probably till now. Okay, and then um, how long it takes me to say my girlfriend Vivian, right? So I think that's awesome. Um, yeah, so I probably bring up Carl Jung in every single episode. Uh, Jungian, you know, the Jungian perspective on psychology has been very meaningful to me, and it seems to be very meaningful for a lot of people who are more artistically minded. It's wrapped into a lot of mythology and folklore and archetypes and stuff like that. So anyways, um, you had hired me, you had hired me maybe three summers ago, maybe four summers ago. You were putting on the ginseng symposium in West Virginia, Mm -hmm. a huge gathering with, um, you know, people who worked for fish and wildlife, and then also with diggers and also with ginseng dealers and herbalists and really an impressive collection of people. 
to talk about ginseng and how to move forward. And uh, you had hired me to film that. And then you were going to head to Europe to go to a... CITES meeting. CITES meeting. On plants. In Geneva or something. Yep, in Geneva, Switzerland. And uh, basically you had rented the camera package that uh-huh. I used for like a week. And we were saying, well, hey, if you add on another few days, right. I'll go with you to Europe and we'll meet one of your friends who you have hired to do a paint. To paint, Her name is uh, Sophie Granval. She's like an old psychedelic... Uh, I mean, she's like in her 80s, but like a psychedelic botanical artist. Incredible paintings. And you wanted to, before she died, you wanted me to film her, kind of film her lifestyle, where she lived, and kind of her daily life. So we went there, we filmed that. That was incredible. Like, I really felt like I was in the home of like a fairy tale witch. I mean, this old woman who lives by herself, her house had burned down. So there was no house left. She lived basically in like a potting shed filled with hay bales with cats and dogs in it. And everything's covered like in dust and she has no shower or bathroom. She just goes in the woods and uh, she has to get water from a little well on the side of the house. Really a magical woman. And uh, the whole time we were there, when we got, that was in France, but on our way there, we were in Switzerland. And I was like, I think, I, I think Jung... I think he lived, I was like close to this. So we're in France and I'm looking this up on my phone and I see Bollingen, which is like a castle that he built. And this castle was supposed to be like a manifestation of- The dream world. The dream, his psyche and the dream world. Um, He like engraved alchemical and esoteric texts into the walls. And uh, basically I just- I could feel that we were done with Sophie. She was getting tired. You know, she's in her 80s. She was getting tired of us being there. We had been there for like a day and a half. And we still had like another few days before having to come back to America. Or I had to come back to America. You had to go to the symposium in Geneva. And I was like, can we try to go to Bollingen? And you're like, I guess. Yeah. So at night, I drove for seven hours. And we got a hotel like on on Lake Zurich. And now Bollingen, it's not, it has not been turned into like a museum. It is owned by the family and it's there, it's not a tourist attraction. Right. Like, and then I guess just to, you know, give a little history, there were a series of the Bollinger papers, which you were familiar with. Which yes. I was familiar with, um, in part because I worked for um uh, Mrs. Paul Mellon for a decade and and Paul Mellon um was really instrumental in uh, supporting Carl Jung in publishing the Bollinger Papers, which uh, would really become the foundational support for his research and life's work. And part of that came about because Paul's first wife um, was a severe asthmatic And I think she really brought Paul into Carl Jung's work because she really believed that her asthma was, you know, spiritually linked Mm -hmm. to um, her psychology and her Mm -hmm. state of mind and believed that, you know, Carl Jung's philosophy um, was kind of, you know, critical. Uh, Sadly, she would die from an asthma attack. Um, 
But in that process, Paul became Carl Jung's greatest patron. Mm. And, and just to be clear, the Mellons were one of these big um, kind of tycoon families dating back into the 1800s. So they were huge art patrons and um, Bunny Mellon was um, has designed the gardens at the White House and her gardens is a whole, is a whole thing in itself, right? right. So these are very, influ this is a very in influential family. Yeah, so Mrs. Mellon was Paul's second wife. Mm. And, you know, um, they, they very much complimented each other and, and as you mentioned, were, were huge patrons mm. of the arts. So I was very tapped into- You were in interested as well. The Bollinger Papers and, and was there when Mrs. Mellon purchased one of the first copies mm. of the Red Book mm. um, when his family allowed it to be finally become uncovered become uncovered yeah the red book was like a series of his like arcane um like spiritual experiences that he wrote um in an illuminated text he would do this incredible like calligraphy and then with these kind of um kind of psychedelic e paintings that he would do and he would work on this at night and kind of um had communication with all sorts of kind of archetypes and deities and spirits while still during the day, you know, having his normal grounded job and kind of, he remained grounded by being able to go off into other dimensions at night while living a normal life during the day. So anyways. So we begin this epic journey drive through the night. I drive for seven hours. <laughs> we stay at a hotel. Um, the next morning, the next morning, we try and find it on like a map and I, I find the town of Bollingen. So we drive over there and I just have a feeling it's in this cluster of trees. And, you know, we, I looking at my GPS, we go, we blow by, by, by it. We circle back around. Um, we park in this area and I'm like, I think it's going to be over there. So we start walking between the road and this clump of trees, which then opens up onto Lake Zurich and I come around the corner and somehow you disappear. It was like a dream. Like you kind of <laughs> disappear. And I come around the corner and the door, this like stone, it's like a stone wall. Archway. And this archway door is open. And there's like a family within just like picnicking. And I'm like, I can't believe it. So I just step through the door <laughs> and they kind of look at me, who are you? And I just say, hey, um, you know, they can speak English. Um, and I'm just like, hey, you know, I'm really into Jung's work. Uh, I've been in Jungian dream analysis for a long time. And these were his descendants. And they were, they seemed to be oddly skeptical of him and thought of him kind of as a madman or something. But they just invited us to, we looked around the courtyard. Um, we looked into the kitchen, which is, in the shape of a circle, has all these amazing engravings. And then there was this moment, which would have been the polite moment to say thank you and to turn around. But I decided to shut up and not say anything. So there was this awkward silence. And then the man said, well, do you guys want a beer? Like you can hang <laughs> out, I guess, if you want. And it was kind of like past the point of political, or uh, past the point of politeness. Uh -huh. But I was like, I don't care. And I was like, can I swim? And yeah. he was like, I guess. So I just take off my clothes. And I'm just in my boxers and I go swimming in Lake Zurich. 
and I'm looking back at Jung's house and I had the feeling of like ghosts waving at me from the house. And I was like, I cannot believe this. And this was such a famous place to him and so much of his discoveries and to be in this numinous house. I mean, our numinous nature, the word numinous is a word used very much in Jungian psychology. But so we got a tour, I got a swim in Lake Zurich. And I mean, when I tell that to people who are really into Jung, mm-hmm. like my analysts, they're like, right. that, that doesn't happen to anybody. Right. <laughs> I mean, basically you were invited, you, were, you walked into a private, the home, a historical home, a privately owned historical home. Right. So the unbelievable. Yeah, that they um, didn't live in. No. But would vacation. But would, but would occasionally vacation. So the and we serendipitous go- timing that we arrived. Synchronistic for sure. When they were there, and, and I even got to see this this one famous. Uh, it was like a cornerstone that he had um, ordered to. I guess be the cornerstone of the of the castle house, and it was sent down on the lake, and it was brought on some little barge, and it got there, and it was the wrong size, and so the contractor was you know furious at the guy who sent this stone down, but Jung said, wait, 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 I'll keep the stone, so he put it in the backyard that opens up onto the lake, and he just started engraving these alchemical images onto the stone. And we got to see that. We got to like stand right next to it. And I mean, it's a work of art. Yeah. So that was quite the experience. And I'm very thankful to you for, you know, making that and realizing that. It it was surreal. Mm-hmm. 100%. 100% surreal. And I do think that, um, you know, Carl Jung was on his own path of rediscovery mm-hmm. and kind of unearthing these um, alchemical mm-hmm. threads of knowledge and of the soul. natural world. Yes, and, and soulful this, stuff. And soulful things and, that had that had to go underground. Mm-hmm, 100%. To survive. And to Luke, because I know he studied with a lot, also he studied with a lot of indigenous uh tribes, groups, peoples as well. But I guess to circle that back to the point of this podcast and why I started this podcast, there's a guy named uh, James A. Swan, who's a, a psychology professor, a whole bunch of stuff, but he's definitely Jungian. And um, I have there's a certain book I haven't read by his yet, which is all about having a connection to nature. But he wrote this book called The Sacred Art of Hunting, which was the, the inspiration for this podcast. Basically, how have hunters throughout history from ancient people to now had a spiritual and numinous connection to the animals, nature, the landscape, and the quarry that they're pursuing. But he said in some interview I heard that every individuated person, and individuation is a Jungian term for someone who's reached wholeness, which is like a lifelong process, a wholeness to really be who they are in all of their darkness, in all of their failings, and in all of their potential. And this guy, James A. Swan, was saying that every individual, oh, he was saying that, I think he said that Joseph Campbell told him that every individuated person that he's met has an incredible love and reverence for nature. Mm. So I thought that's so beautiful, that you can't do it. Without without, reaching that 
capacity for consciousness that you can't reach that without understanding the oneness and love of nature. You, yes, that that's essential, right. which makes total sense. Yeah, I mean we've we are have come from this. Right. Then you you can't reach a spiritual wholeness and enlightenment without a grounded love of nature. Right. Love that so much. Mm-hmm. Should we end there? Yes. Okay. Um, just tell us if people want to follow you've you've actually created a really a quite successful Instagram account to promote everything for United Plane Savers. Do you want to just say a few things there? Yes, we have an Instagram account at United Plant Savers. We also have the Instagram account at UPS Botanical Sanctuary where you can see what's happening at the Botanical Sanctuary in, in Rutland, Ohio. Um, we certainly are a membership-based organization. We, we couldn't exist without, um, people becoming members. So if you, if you feel inspired, you know, sign up and it's $35 for the year. And we produce the Journal of Medicinal Plant Conservation, which is a very unique journal that tells a lot of these important stories. And, and you've also last year before COVID, you guys just finished building a um, conservation center mm-hmm. for plants. So that is unfolding as maybe a destination for people to go visit. There's going to be like a little front museum. Yeah, absolutely. There's yeah a little front museum about uh, medicinal plants in Appalachia and uh, information about uh, Jim Duke. It's dedicated to Jim and Peggy Duke. Um, he was, you know, a prominent author and ethnobotanist, and she was a, a prominent botanical illustrator, and or she still is. She's um, uh, Jim Duke passed away uh, a few years ago, and then we have um, uh, part of his library, and um, so yeah, it's it's definitely a destination. We accept camping people and, to come and camp, and and the, the property trails. is a reclaimed coal uh, strip mine and basically it, it's been completely it's there's medicinal plants have been planted right. part all of over. the land was strip mined and and has been uh reclaimed and other parts of the property are in, are intact forests that have many of the native medicinal plants um uh living in the woods that you can hike and get to know so cool all right this has been epic. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. It's awesome to talk to you like this because, you know, just as our landlady, it's usually just, hey, how are you doing? Right. So it's very cool. You know, I found I felt this way with Donna. It's like, you know, how often do you sit around for like two hours to talk to someone? Right. It's a whole different thing. <laughs>